0: Welcome to another episode of El Cafecito. My name is Leonardo Casenza. I'm your host for the second season, and as you've noticed, this is an extra episode that's on your timeline, and that is because I covered an event called Transitions um, on November twenty second, two thousand and nineteen, at the Monk School of Global Affairs, co-hosted also by the Latin American Studies Program. The idea is to keep on recording these events, the workshops, talks, lectures hosted by the Latin American Studies Program. I would like to thank both Professor Kingsbury and Professor Rebus for letting me record them. And I hope you like it. And a quick message, El Cafecito is available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. So please share with your friends. This event was, was organized uh, fairly rapidly, given the, the, the rapid clip of events. And so the fact that so many of you have shown up is really, uh, it warms my heart. Um, I'm going to start by uh, recognizing that Canada is a settler colony, which means that it was founded on and is reproduced by genocide on a daily basis, both in Canada and uh, abroad. Um, This means that the land on which this university is situated has belonged to multiple First Nations peoples throughout its history, um, and continues to be used by First Nations peoples, and hopefully will be continue to be used directly by First Nation peoples, the Huron of the Seneca, of the Mississauga of Fort Credit, in a much more direct fashion into the future. We should also recognize that Canada's status as a settler colony that is based on and continues to reproduce genocide against Indigenous peoples is reflected in its relations in the Americas, which is something we can also talk about today. And it's in that spirit that... Uh, Professor Rivas and I uh, called to organize this, uh, this conversation um, on contemporary Latin America. Um, Professor Victor Rivas, as many of you know, doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, he's the program lead at uh, Latin American studies in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese here at the University of Toronto. Uh, my name's Donald Kingsbury. I probably need a bit more of an introduction. Uh, I'm uh, the interim director of the Monk One program here at the University of Toronto, and I also lecture in uh, political science and Latin American studies. So I just want to say a few things about the nature of the event, and uh, then we'll we'll, we'll press on, and uh, we'll see. This is kind of experimental. Over the course of the last semester, I've had a number of conversations with students, colleagues, activists, comrades, um, about the very rapid clip, the rapid pace of events occurring throughout the region uh, that uh, many of us know and love uh, and study or come from. And it's, it's happening so quickly, protests, elections, coups, ecological crises, that it's, it's actually quite difficult to keep track of, let alone make sense of or contextualize. So it was in that spirit that I proposed to Professor Rivas that we convoke an uh, analysis de coyuntura, uh, a sort of conjunctural analysis where we attempt to make sense of contemporary events. And the aim here is to have this be a collective, collaborative conversation. The idea really is to uh, to discuss. So I'll say a little bit about my work, so that maybe uh, you can know what I can talk about. <laughs> um, I'll ask Professor Rivas to introduce his work. So my name is Donald Kingsbury. Uh, uh, I'm the author of a book on on Venezuelan social movements and political thought called Only the People Can Save the People, Constituent Power, Revolution, and Counter-Revolution in Venezuela. Uh, I've just finished uh, another book manuscript on extractivism, on the practice and ideology of resource extraction as the road to development. Um, So it's a book on extractivism, uh, populism, and uh, environmental activism in Latin America with an emphasis on Venezuela and Ecuador. Uh, I am currently uh, about knee deep in a research project on lithium extraction in the lithium triangle of Chile, uh, northern Chile, southern Bolivia, and uh, northwestern Argentina. And the idea here is that, for those of you who don't know, uh, lithium is the the metal that is uh, the, the, the number one ingredient for the batteries that you know, we use in our phones, in electric cars, in photovoltaic cells. The idea here being that uh, if uh, we are going to respond planetarily to climate change through a decarbonization of the global economy, we're going to need a lot more lithium. And some of the world's largest deposits of lithium are in Bolivia and Chile. Um, so it's in the process of looking at a research project on resource extraction in the four renewable energies uh, that I've been spending a lot of time working through Bolivian and and Chilean politics at precisely this moment when, as you all know, uh, know, in Bolivia, uh, two weeks ago there was a military coup uh, that installed a uh, religious fundamentalist, a Christian fundamentalist, uh, white supremacist government that's now the de facto regime that has called for elections at some point in the indeterminate future. And in Chile, protests since uh, October 1st have forced uh, President Sebastián Piñera to um, first reshuffle and replace his cabinet and now push for the rewriting of the Constitution, which is, which is a monumental step for anybody who's spent any time studying Chile and Chilean politics, that this is the Constitution that was written by Augusto Pinochet. And it's been the single most important institutional figure that's prevented any sort of social change in Chile since the transition to civilian rule in 1990. So that's me. So I, I, I'm here. I would love to talk about uh, the, the social movements uh, and the current unrest in post-coup Bolivia, the uh, uprisings that forced the reversal by the government of Lenin Moreno in Ecuador earlier uh, in October, uh, the Chilean student movements. But really, part of the reason why I'm so glad there's so many people here is, is it doesn't stop there, right? Uh, Luis Ignacio Lula de Silva in Brazil was recently freed from prison. The people of Haiti have been in the streets for the last three months. That gets almost no coverage in the north. Mm -hmm. A uh, Canadian-backed de facto government, now on its third round of illegitimate elections in Honduras, continues to repress political prisoners, environmental activists, and indigenous peoples. Uh, The government of Mexico, despite how much much hope we had for the government of Andrés Manuel López Obrador, has now essentially agreed to serve as the extended wing of the United States uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service or Homeland Security and is now defending, quote unquote, the southern border uh, of Mexico against migrants from the north so that uh, the United States uh, doesn't have to along its border with Mexico. And I know there's some people in the room who can talk directly about that. So really, uh, that's me. I'm already talking more than I want. I've got uh, El Chavismo de la Boca. I don't. I, I'm, it's kind of a Sin among professors, but now I'd, I'd just like Professor Rivas to introduce himself, and then we'll we'll come back to the room.
1: Good morning, everybody. Buenos dias. Uh, thank you, Professor Kingsbury Don, uh, for organizing this event between Monk One and the Latin American Studies Program. Uh, My name is Victor Rivas. Uh, I'm originally from Venezuela. I've been living in North America for uh, quite uh, a number of years now. I had had most of my education in the United States, and I've been working between uh, North America and South America, in particular Venezuela. And my book is a book about um, a not very well-known guerrilla fighter from Venezuela and Nicaragua. It's uh, called Ali Gomez Garcia, and the title of the book is Incursiones Culturales, or Cultural Incursions. It is a postmodern testimonio, if you're familiar with the term testimonio, Latin American genre, por excelencia. Uh, There's a firsthand narrative experienced by the the author or authors who are uh, needing to express the um, the 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 reality that they're living, and they communicate that reality with the essentially the outside world outside of their their own reality. Uh, guerrilla fighters, eh, eh, mine workers, eh, eh, indigenous peoples, who normally do not have access or a platform for such expressions to disseminate their information, eh, now finally have a way of talking about such events. This is pretty much coming out of the 1970s and continues to be a genre studied, testimonio. Um, why postmodern? Because testimonio is supposed to be a type of uh, genre that is based on real events. And when we add the term postmodern, it really messes up the definition. And in the case of Ali Gomez, why I studied him in particular, not Rigoberta Minchu, for example, or Domitila, eh, Barrio de Chungara, Uh, for example, or other Omar Cabezas, for example, uh, has to do because Ali Gomez Garcia mixes in his reality as a guerrilla fighter in Venezuela and in Nicaragua, and also mixes it in with real characters like Simón Bolívar from history, as if Simón Bolívar were living at the time of Ali Gomez's uh, 1970s and 80s guerrilla insurgencies in Venezuela. Uh, He also brings in characters from uh, popular culture and um, Venezuela and Colombian folklore, like uh, Mama Inés, Todos los Negros Tomamos Café, you know this song. Uh, Mama Inés is a character in his book, has uh, lengthy conversations about the role of Afro-Venezuelans, Afro-Caribbeans, and the struggles that Ali Gomez and his people were were fighting. And um, he also brings in an indigenous, an Amerindian uh, character, called Maria Leonza, which a lot of you should be familiar with from the songs by Ruben Blades, for example, Maria Leonza, right? Um, so this is the book that, that, I, that I published in, in Venezuela because it is relevant to, to the Venezuelan history uh, and politics, and I'm currently working on a second book that has to do with the continuation, the evolution, if you wish, of what testimonial literature is what uh, we're calling resistance literature in the 1980s by Barbara Harlow. Um, resistance literature would tend to be the type of narratives that stand uh, and that are written uh, for the causes of what used to be called the subaltern uh, communities, the peoples, the marginal peoples living under oppressing conditions. But that was in the 80s, and the concept of resistance literature changes to now here we are, 2019, almost 2020, on the eve of it, and uh, that concept has changed because we, now we have groups of people writing what could consider uh, could be considered resistance literature as well, also testimonial literature as well, but they're coming from a different um, social-political background. It's not the typical marginalized and subaltern people writing these narratives today. We're talking about diasporic um, populations from Latin America, from Venezuela, from Colombia, I study Colombia, and I study also Peru, and the narratives that are coming out of Peru, Venezuela, and Colombia as reactions to the political movements that, uh, in the case of Colombia, for example, over 60 years protracted violence, la violencia, and with the recent signing of uh, uh, FARC uh, and uh, ELN and other guerrilla groups that are Wishing to sign a peace accord and not wishing to sign, and the resurgence of violence that is uh, occurring in Colombia right now. There are narratives that talk about these experiences. In Peru, the the after effects of Sendero Luminoso again, uh, a, 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 a majority of people caught between the fires of the uh, Maoist guerrilla group in the in the sierras and the state, right? So the government forces fighting each other, pretty much like the situation used to be in Guatemala, and now that's a resurgence. Um, But there are narratives coming out of that 40-plus years of uh, violence in uh, Peru that are now being manifested in narratives. Now, the same case in Venezuela. 20 years of uh, Bolivarianismo, Chavismo, a government that is not seeing eye to eye with the United States administration's on either side of the fence, um, and um, the narratives that are coming out of a diasporic community, those people who have left Venezuela either by foot, by bus, by, by hitching a ride, or those, in particular, those who were able to afford to leave the country by airplane, by airfare, and move to Europe, Spain, uh, Mexico, Panama, uh, United States, and Canada, who are creating narratives about their experiences— of having lived life under chavismo and on the in Venezuela. They could be considered narratives of uh, resistance on one definition. They could also be considered testimonios by a following definition as well. This is what I'm working on right now uh, for my current manuscript. Uh, I'm, I'm here accompanying Professor Kingsbury, a good friend and compañero de lucha. Um, we both worked in Venezuela uh, during the, the early years of... Uh, of Chavismo, um, community work uh, in the barrios, missions. We even were in the same building at one time without even knowing each other. And knowing that there was a fellow. <laughs> In working with communities, um, so we have this kindred spirit. We have this uh, a, a similar scholarship that uh, intertwines, and, and intersects, if you wish. Um, so I'm just here today to to complement uh, mostly what Professor Kingsbury will be monitoring uh, and hopefully helping all of you. Because, as Professor Kingsbury explained, we're here to listen to your points of views, your uh, observations, we all have access to the same news online, and we know how problematic that can be because uh, we know that media as it is uh, today, mainstream media at the very least, is uh, quite organized in itself. It's its own beast. And we will be um, uh, only uh, uh, accessing that information that they wish for us to access. We have other sources that we can uh, talk to, people on the ground, people who are in the front lines, on both sides of whatever ideological political fence you might uh, um, uh, subscribe to. But um, we do have some more access, and because of the work that we do uh, with people on the ground as well, perhaps we have some more contextualization that we can add to your observations and your your own knowledge. We'd love to share this. This is why we're here today
0: all right thank you um so so I think what I'd like to ask you all to do um since again we do have a, a very full room I'd like you to just take a few moments to talk to your neighbor and maybe write down a few questions that we can post to the room I'll write them down and then try to do my best to put my organizer back, hat back on and take stack and and uh, keep things flowing and you'll you'll forgive me in advance so um just take a few minutes and then I'll call us back to to session okay <laughs> a lot of people, particularly in the social sciences, uh, were quite taken with this notion of a, of a pink tide or a marea rosada, right, that, that after the election of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela in 1998, you had a wave of left of center presidencies, it's important to say presidencies, not necessarily governments. <laughs> Uh, that came to power throughout the region, with some notable exceptions. Colombia uh, and Mexico, for example, being like the two clearest, most prominent counterpoints to this wave of left-wing presidencies that, that shared, you know, a fair amount in common, but their, their, their differences were much greater than was often presented in sort of glosses on this kind of left-wing Latin America. That are pursuing you know progressive inclusive egalitarian policies at a time when the rest of the world the gap between rich and poor continues to grow and so for many people particularly on the international left latin america was this kind of hopeful uh space and in in that analysis that that i think desire on the part of researchers to say that there was a left-wing shift in an entire prominent region of the world you glossed over a lot of significant differences Mm -hmm. Uh, and a lot of significant shortcomings, which have come home to roost over the course of the past five years or so. Um, and so I guess the the question here, though, as I think you rightly point out, is you know what we've got mass mobilizations in some cases on scales never seen before. The largest demonstrations in the history of Chile. Hmm. Demonstrations so powerful in Ecuador that they forced the president to move the capital city from Quito to Guayaquil. Right? Um, You've got you know another tradition. You speak of Peru. You know, Iscara just uh, a month ago uh, dissolved his own parliament. The second autogolpe in in Peruvian uh, recent Peruvian memory. Right. So there's there's all sorts of agitation, mobilization, um, and so the question is: Is are there common threads? I think, mm. um, and what are their prospects of moving forward from from uh, from the protest to the proposal, like from from protest and no and you know rage against uh, unequal conditions, unfair existence into uh, something more sustainable, right? or something something that can more substantively actually address demands. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think. I, but I also think we should talk about the larger picture of, of, of Bolivia, uh, whether or not it was a coup, whether or not uh, Morales is or is not. Uh, I mean, my my personal opinion. Professional opinion, not the opinion of my employer. Uh, I have think I have to say that is uh, the time for debating whether or not it was a coup is over. Now is the time to work and to advocate vigorously to defend human rights as the military in Bolivia is is killing people in the streets. Right, whether or not. So we can we can talk. We can judge Evo and um, Avro Garcia Linera later. Um, we can talk about the relationship between the president and the social movements that made him possible later, now is the point to say Canada don't recognize a government that's killing people in the streets, right, as, as people who live in Canada. Um, but, we'll, but we can talk more about, Bolivia. could we take maybe one or two more points? There's there's, there's very little difference. I mean, there, there's I think if anything, there's a good cop, bad cop relationship where the United States has, you know, Trump in the Oval Office and then actual war criminals, people like uh, Elliot Abrams, who's in charge, you know, the men who orchestrated, trained and funded death squads in Central America in the 1980s, in particular in the war against the FMLN in, in El Salvador, who are now in charge of the Venezuela file for the Trump administration. Canada is the kinder, gentler global north. Uh, and that heavy, heavy, heavy scare quotes. You know, entre comillas, right? Um, that um, you know, Trudeau and Friedland were very proud that they they established the the, uh, the they they were foundational in forming the Lima Group, which was a way to get around uh, the organization of American states to put pressure on Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see much of a difference. And increasingly, like, increasingly, Panas don't see much of a difference either. Like, especially if you live in, in Guatemala or Honduras in the neighborhood of a Canadian mining company, uh, the fact that, that you know, uh, Justin Trudeau has a 50 50 male female uh, cabinet doesn't really mean much to you, and you're getting your head split by private security working for Barrick Gold.
1: Mm. We, we we're concerned with Bolivia, eh, perhaps as most of you, all of you um, are already aware of in the news, eh, the after effects. What is the, the the consequence of the situation in Bolivia to the region, Latin America? So it affects not only the perception of Mexico's foreign policy, accepting, uh, as they state proudly, a tradition of, of exiled presidents uh, throughout Latin America, if not the world, um, uh, but also, for example, the in the in the region that I'm looking at, Venezuela, Colombia, Peru. How how does the situation in Bolivia uh, exacerbate, and or perhaps bring back to the forefront what is occurring in the case of Venezuela? Again, uh, the interim uh, self-proclaimed president Guaido is currently. Um, asking for demonstrations, open demonstrations, uh, unending demonstrations in the streets of Caracas in order to, as the media portrays it, refuel the, the attempt to, uh, gather so much support to top of the government, to incite the military to, uh, join them and top of the government the same way that, uh, we just saw it happened in, in Bolivia, apparently. In, that is a model that is now being touted, is being celebrated, uh, especially by people who are, uh, in the case of Venezuela, um, oppositional towards the government. Um, that's the case of just Venezuela. In other places, they're celebrating as, see, the, the left, even a soft left, uh, even if it's a self-proclaimed or self, um, uh, uh, represented indigenous style, uh, government in the case of Bolivia, um, the, uh, the, that system was proven then, quote, not to work, to the celebration of uh, people like now the, 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 the current also self-proclaimed president of Bolivia. Uh, and that responds to Brazil, a response to the whole region. This is our concern. What are the after effects? Yeah, why don't we talk about Bolivia
0: a little bit more then? Um because it's, I mean, it, it, it is a complicated picture, and indeed many, many people have, have been frustrated with, with Evo. Um, for those of us who are, are maybe newer, um, Evo Morales uh, was elected as the the first in, indigenous person in a country that's 60 to 70% indigenous identified, um, a country that... Doesn't have the same sort of mestizo or mixed race national mythology that we have in in Mexico, for example. Mm. Uh, it was very much uh, throughout, you know, its history since the the, the colonization, uh, a, a caste society right? defined by by race, by language, by geographical location. Right, uh, whether you're in the Andes, whether you're in the lowlands, the north or the south, um, Morales comes from social movements. He's a uh, cocalero union leader. He's a leader of the coca unions, uh, which is a leaf that is uh, traditionally used by indigenous peoples and visitors to Bolivia. Um, it helps, uh, it, it, it fends off hunger, It uh, it's a stimulant. After much, much, much chemical processing, it can be turned into cocaine. Uh, which is why Bolivia was targeted by the United States Drug Enforcement Agency under the auspices of the War on Drugs throughout the 1980s, which directly impacted, most directly in Bolivia, peasant farmers who were criminalized and attacked by the Bolivian state and the U.S. military. And that's that's where Evo Morales cuts his teeth politically as a, as a union leader. Uh, he forms an alliance, his movement, with uh, urban intellectuals and with other... Um, and urban intellectuals are... are represented most prominently by his vice president, Alvaro Garcia Linera, who's a uh, uh, Marxist university professor. Um, he uh, was at one point uh, often seen as, as one of the more dynamic uh, and, and, and uh, progressive Marxist thinkers. So not like an old school, like Marxist, Leninist stages of development. He was, he was interested in how uh, race and place and cosmology inform uh, class conflict and historical development in, in places like Bolivia, where you have much more of a uh, indigenized peasantry than a like industrial working class. I might come back to that later. I just, that's where he started anyway. So uh, uh, a coalition of uh, union movements, of indigenous movements, of urban intellectuals formed the Mas IPSP, uh, which is the movement towards socialism, the the political instrument for the sovereignty of the people. And it's important because this is less a party than a a umbrella or a coalition that made the decision after much debate, much furious debate to enter into electoral politics rather than focusing their energy on direct action to protest uh, the neoliberalization of the Bolivian economy. Um, Bolivia is where the term shock therapy was first coined in terms of the execution of, uh, by at, the, at the end of a barrel of a gun, of uh, very, very harsh economic austerity measures that of course impacted the poor, poorest of the poor most severely. Struggles against the reformation of the economy really come to a head in the early 2000s. Uh, a series of conflicts uh, that unite uh, diverse sectors of the population against the economic reforms that were being carried out in Bolivia Uh, You see, I'm fast forwarding through a lot of details here, you see eventually not only the collapse of the economy but the collapse of the traditional political class. And you see a a widespread uh, growing mistrust in institutions and traditional political parties but also a willingness to uh, pursue something different. And so Evo runs uh, for president with Garcia Linera with a a party that promises to convoke a national constituent assembly, rewrite the constitution and refound the Bolivian Republic, which they do in 2009 uh, after he'd been elected president. And after a protracted uh, constituent assembly process, they they rewrite the constitution, redefine the country as the plurinational republic of Bolivia. So they kind of jettison the idea of the, the modern nation state that assumes you've got a coherent unified people but instead says, look, Bolivia has always been and will continue to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi space. And the state is not some organic appendage of a unified people with the same identity. The state is rather an instrument we use to, to get things done, to settle disputes, to build roads and so forth. So, Evo is uh, for most of his tenure in the presidency one of the most popular presidents in Latin America in terms of how he's polling both at home and abroad. And, and as the, the friend pointed out, he he, uh, he became quite a figure that people all over, like Aymara people in, in Peru would talk about um, as kind of like our comrade Evo or, or our Evo. Um, he oversaw uh, what the Wall Street Journal, which is not a, not a newspaper that uh, tends to celebrate self-declared socialists. The Wall Street Journal celebrated um, as he created an indigenous middle class. Um, the first thing, first time we've seen that, right? Um, he was unabashedly, unab- oh boy, oh, there it goes. There's the language. Uh, unabashedly indigenous. Uh, he incorporated the wipala, uh, that kind of multi. It's not there yet, but uh, it's in some of the images behind me, that, that kind of rainbow flag, that's a symbol of indigenous resurgence in the Andes. He incorporated that as, as a national symbol right along the traditional tricolor flag uh, and invested heavily in education, in uh, social infrastructure, um, in healthcare. But he did so on the back of uh, a, a doubling down on extractivism, on mining, on large-scale agribusiness, that alienated many of his traditional supporters in the indigenous and environmental movements. And as he creeps on into his 10th and 11th and 12th year in office, you see increasing discontent and mobilization among his traditional supporters who are saying it's time for Evo to step down. Evo is ruling in too top-down a fashion. He's no longer practicing the spirit of horizontal solidarity and collective action that define the early years of the anti-neoliberal struggles that made Evo possible in the first place. And so by the time 2016 comes around, he's facing opposition not only from the traditional uh, racist uh, elites that have never supported his presidency, but just kind of bared it, Uh, during the boom years, of the the commodity booms of the early 2000s, he's also facing opposition from people who had supported him and supported him very strongly Mm -hmm. during his first terms in office. So 2016, Evo's recognizing that his term is coming to an end and term limits in the Constitution say he can't run for re-election. And so he puts forward a uh, referendum that would allow him, if he wins it, to get re-elected and he loses it. And many on-the-ground grassroots activists say, good, now we can set up the work of having a continuity, finding finding new people to replace Evo, to replace Garcia Linera, uh, to really keep the project going and not have it centered on the singular figure of Evo Morales. Um, But Evo doesn't do that. Evo makes an end run to the Supreme Court, or the Constitutional Court, I should say, who uh, agrees that... Um, agrees with Evo's argument, which indefinite which says indefinite re-election is a human right, which uh, many people find dubious for I think sound reasons. Uh, he runs for re-election uh, this past October twentieth, um, or October tenth. Sorry, um, runs for re-elect. No, uh, October twentieth. Um, runs for re-election uh, and. Few things should be said about this. One, you've got um, you know the people who used to be on Evo's side, uh, calling for him to step down, calling for him not to run for re-election, and the primary opposition candidate, primary opposition candidate is a guy named Carlos Mesa. He's a former vice president and president during the anti-neoliberal struggles in the early 2000s. Mesa says five weeks before the election, we're not going to recognize the results of this election. Right. So you already have denialism. You already have obstructionism on the part of Mesa, who's actually probably the most centrist figure in the opposition. We'll talk more about the cast of, of the opposition in a moment. So you've already got uh, discrediting, distrust, uh, a denial that, that, that nobody, you've already got the opposition saying, we're not going to respect the results. We're not going to recognize the results of the of the uh, election. Election night comes. Um, in Bolivia, you have a process where rapid results, they call them, are announced as, as, as data comes in, as votes come in. Uh, these aren't the official results. These are just the preliminary results. right? And what happens is uh, Evo has the lead that he was projected to get. Right? And, and this, this should actually be really underlined forcefully here. Nobody, no serious observer, is debating whether or not Evo won that first round of elections. He won. Everybody, everybody agrees on this, unless they're I don't know Luis Almagro. Um, what is the question is whether or not he won by a ten percent margin. So according to the constitution, if you win by a ten percent margin over the runner-up, there's no second round. So the rapid release election results are being announced. Then uh, at some point in the evening, the they begin the official tally, at which point they stop. Releasing the rapid release vote count. They uh, well, I mean, we should talk about the role of the Organization of American States as well, um, because they've I think two parties acted rather fishy uh, on October 20th. First of all, is the government of Evo Morales, which uh, even even friends of, of Evo have said, you know, you didn't you didn't have to operate in the way you did. You've you've done yourself no favors. You've heightened Questions uh, you've made the problem for yourself, right? Uh, The other thing is the Organization of American States, which almost immediately comes out uh, with uh, denunciations of the electoral process in Bolivia. Um, Too fast for many people. Too fast for many people, especially considering uh, the the role of the Organization of American States. Both in the the Venezuela case, but also, I mean, its entire history is it's a it's a U.S. created body meant to isolate Cuba. I mean, it's it's not not many, not many serious observers actually think the Organization of American States is anything approaching an impartial observer. It certainly points to the degree to which the MAS was fragmented, was had had lost uh, much of its original uh, power. So let's talk for a second about the opposition, because um, what one thing that does happen is immediately you see a very well immediately upon the the confusion, and then eventually Evo and the electoral council announce that that Evo is is has won in the first round, and they very quickly try to move on, and that's prevented because you have immediately uh, widespread uh, and often violent mobilizations, not all, but but often violent mobilizations uh, against. Uh, MAS headquarters, against MAS supporters, uh, against symbols of the government, and it varies from place to place, right, uh, in terms of its intensity. Probably where it's it's most intense and, and most disturbing occurs in the eastern department of Santa Cruz, uh, which has long been uh, a center of, of anti-MAS and anti-EVO uh, organizing all the way back to the the so-called uh, Nacion Camba movement or the separatist movement uh, of 2007, 2008, when in response to Evo being elected, uh, elites tried to lead uh, a separatist movement to, to separate from uh, from Bolivia. Um, that movement was eventually quelled in the course of the constitutional referendum, one, but also uh, the result of that conflict between agricultural elites. So the, it's, it's called the media luna, uh, of the departments of Beni, Santa Cruz, uh, Pando, and Tarija. Um, but it's the, the lowlands, right? Uh, lowlands in some of the Amazonian territory. So some, some Chacos, some Amazon, some lowlands. Um, the, and this is where the, the agricultural, like the, the large uh, beef and soy plantations are, but also where the natural gas is located in, in Bolivia. Um, so, one of the ways that, that Evo was able to navigate that crisis, that separatist crisis in the, the early 2000s, was to surrender a lot of agricultural policy to those elite growers, right? which is when you start seeing uh, much more expansion of the kind of plantation agribusiness frontier into the Amazon, which has facilitated this summer's round of fires. That, you know, we, we paid a lot of attention to the fires in Brazil. Um, but there are also uh, just as many significant and concerning fires in Bolivia and Paraguay as well. Yeah. So, but this was a way to both, so Evo allows for the expansion of the soy frontier deeper into the Amazon, which generates more revenue for his country, but also buys off a political enemy, right? This is another element of, of chiseling away at that original group of supporters for the mosque that happens very early on. The... Calls for Evo to resign after the, uh, the the controversies and the crisis ensuing crisis after the October 20th election comes from multiple camps. It comes from uh, the kind of centrist opposition headed by Carlos Mesa. It comes from the hard right, very Christian fundamentalist, very racist opposition in Santa Cruz. Kind of centered around this figure, Luis Macho Camacho. Um, this is the guy who some of you will have seen on Twitter, who who carried a Bible into the presidential palace and said, "Pachamama will never return." Um, who who only like he's got a he's got he's got rosaries on like every appendage of his body, um, uh, and he's he's he starts from he, this is a figure that starts from the the Santa Cruz separatism movement. He was a leader in the Santa Cruz youth movement. Uh, that has adopted. I'm not making this up. The Nazi salute as their official. Um, yeah, I mean maybe one of the the way. I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Evangelicals in the OAS, and uh, I mean one of the things. I mean the OAS is a. It's a very very large organization, which means it's 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 complicated always. So on the one hand, they make an initial statement, um, calling the elections fraudulent. Uh, Along the same vein, there's an OAS proposition brought up to denounce the coup in Bolivia and the president Luis Almagro says there was only one coup in Bolivia and that occurred on the 20th of October when Evo Morales uh, refused to step down, right? But at the same time, the OAS also, uh, in calling for new elections, said, you know, the constitution needs to be respected, there needs to be continuity. Evo's mandate does not end until the 20th of January. And so the OAS was saying, you know, Morales shouldn't stand for re-election, but also his term should be finished in order to prevent a breach of constitutional order, which is what we are, in fact, living through right now. Right? Um, the OAS, so the OAS, so for example, Venezuela, over the past 15 years or so, has been pursuing, among other projects, a, a now defunct project called Petro Caribe which distributes Venezuelan oil to Caribbean states with the exception of Trinidad and Tobago, maybe Cuba. The, the Caribbean as, an, as a region is energy poor, right? Uh, carbon energy poor, it doesn't have gas, doesn't have coal. And so Venezuela trades Venezuelan oil to uh, Caribbean states in exchange for in kind, uh, you know, fish, medicine, students, that sort of thing, but also for political support in fora like the, like the OAS which is part of the reason Canada spearheaded forming the Grupo de Lima to uh, isolate Venezuela, because you can't, because of how effective Venezuelan diplomacy has been, you can't get the most stridently uh, anti-Venezuelan, anti or anti-Maduro, anti-Morales, anti-Ortega in Nicaragua, you can't get resolutions passed because of the effectiveness of Venezuelan Petro diplomacy. Um, so that means that the OAS it's a complicated beast it's headed by a person who's very interventionist right now um, but yeah it's and you know there are questions as to you know its role in the region of course um, but it, it uh, when you get an organization that's larger than two people you tend to have these kind of contradictions you know um, if I could say one thing about evangelicals I think that's also a complicated story. Um, because, for example, a lot of the supporters of Chavez in Venezuela are evangelicals, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the Catholic Church is, is very opposed, especially the hierarchy. Um, yeah. Chavez himself. Uh, Chavez himself, yeah. Um, but it's an interesting thing, I mean, there, are there any, like, anthropologists of religion in the room, or? Yeah. Chile, the, the protests that eventually have turned into an insurrection, I think, mm-hmm. at this point, right? Uh, they're triggered by a hike in subway fares, right? And what's it? What's that? Yeah, a relatively minimal amount. It's already the highest boleto in in the region, but it's it's a relatively small amount. And what's interesting is that when the Piñera government announced the fare hike, they also said students are exempted, right? What happens is, and, and there's a long, well, recent long history of, of uh, students in Chile mobilizing around uh, around transit and around the right to the city. Right? Remember the Pinguino movement of, uh, gosh, 10 years ago now, 15 years ago now? So maybe some of you don't remember that. Uh, but these were high school students. Pinguinos, because their uniforms make them look like little penguins, uh, who would, would were, were forcing their way onto public transit as a protest to how expensive it was for uh, young people and poor people and working people to access the city, right? Um, and, uh, and that's part of the reason why when Piñera announced this fair hike, um, he said students are exempted because he didn't want to face the nasty situation once again of, of calling out uh, troops to put down 12-year-olds, Uh, But so what happens, and this this says something about the degree of political uh, solidarity and mobilization among students in Santiago, is that they said, no way, like, this is it. This is the straw. And they organized these these mass, uh, they called them uh, ambushes, right, where you would see hundreds and sometimes over a thousand students jumping the turnstiles. It starts as sit-ins and then becomes takeovers. Uh, and this goes on for a few weeks. It's really disruptive. Um, and then Pinera calls in the the the, the, the military militarized police. Um, and the the disproportionate heavy-handedness of the the attack on on students who are arguing that everybody should have access to transportation just sets something off, right? And for uh, three weekends, right, you've got what I mean can only really be described as, as an explosion of, of just rage against 30, 40, 50 years of growing inequality, of increasing lack of access to services. I mean, Chile is often held up as the, the model because it, it has a you know, free market economy since, since Pinochet handed over the design of the economy to U.S. trained economists, the Chicago boys. And it's got a, a, a standard. It's got a, a, a per capita GDP that's that's quite enviable around the region, but it's it's incredibly unequal. It's it's it de- depends on the measure. It's either Chile or Brazil are the most unequal countries in, in Latin America. So you've got elites who who have a standard of living comparable to elites here in Canada, right? Both middle class and extremely wealthy people, right? Uh, then you've got. who make up, you know, 40 to 50 percent of the population who are living in in Central American conditions, And watching kids get get clubbed by the cops triggered an explosion. Um, And so people started attacking uh, symbols of how difficult life has become over the past decades, right? Pharmacies, because you know, thousands of people died. I mean, it's a similar healthcare system to the United States. You know, thousands of people died because they couldn't get access to basic health care last year, right? Uh, banks, you know, pensions were were uh, privatized in Chile during the, the Pinochet years, which means uh, many people, especially people working in the informal sector, don't actually have enough money to retire on. And so you work until you die early. Right. And I think it's a, an economic model that's shared by governments of the right and the left actually in the region and i think um, i think people are fed up right now, part of the problem that we're seeing in chile for example is in in, in many ways Piñera was elected you know he's, he's one of the richest men or he's, he's a he's a billionaire uh he's one of these kind of Chilean oligarchs, right? He, he made his money uh, when Pinochet was, uh, was uh, selling off communications, banks. Uh, so he's got like a, a, a diversified portfolio. Um, but like his brother was one of the Chicago boys, right? Um, he names a cabinet when he's reelected uh, that are Pinochet supporters, both economically, but also people who are uh, arch Catholics, people with connections to um, Colonia Dignidad, which is this uh, German enclave that was established in 1946 when a sudden influx of a certain type of German was fleeing a certain set of court trials that were taking place in Nuremberg. <laughs> uh, so it's it's uh, so escape Nazis who uh, who actually it, this was a torture camp during the Pinochet years, right? And and these are people who make up Piñera's second cabinet. In many ways, he gets elected. Uh, because there's a split in the left. Right? There's a split in the, between the left and the center left, where uh, finally, after almost 30 years of, of center centrist rule, uh, that has largely just continued the Chilean model uh, that Pinochet created. that increases inequality, that puts harsh restrictions on people's social liberties, right to abortion, for example, right to basic health care. Uh, that uh, you finally get the movement of, a, of a, the emergence of a Frente Amplio, a right? uh, coalition of parties, movements, and unions that says we're no longer just going to support the centrist coalition because the right is so odious. And it's because of that split that uh, Piñera is able to get elected in the, in the second round. He's running against a real lukewarm uh, socialist, right? And so uh, the, the, the moment has already been one of... Uh, pushing towards, you know, we need to, to do something different and break with the status quo. And when Pinera calls in the Carabineros and then later the police and has a full state of siege, you know, I think middle class people in Santiago could say, well, you know, it's, it's horrible that we have the military in Mapuche territory, but it's far away, right? But when there's tanks on the street in Santiago, something breaks, right? fundamentally. And, um, so when you have a state of siege for a week, you see even more widespread. We're talking protests in one city of, you know, a million and a half people, um, that are all pushing for the complete overhaul of the refounding of Chile and the the writing of a new constitution. And Piñera sacks his, um, sacks his cabinet. That's not enough. No, I mean, I think I think what everybody's pointing to from different directions is that um, I mean, my entire life and and most of the entire lives of us in the room have been characterized by a very punitive form of 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 political economy of capitalism, right? A very that really punishes poor people for being poor. Um, I mean, that's that's literally the way these sorts of pensions and social assistance are written. You want it to be low enough that it's not attractive for people so that they go out and work even if they're you know, 70 years old. Um, I'm just looking at the the list of, of issues that have been been raised um, I guess that to, to come back just real quickly to, to Chile the the I think what's what's most interesting moving forward is that uh, we're now in the territory where Piñera wanted the Congress to rewrite the Constitution that was rejected. Uh, and in April of next year, there's actually going to be a referendum uh, that decides whether or not to write, rewrite the Constitution and how. To have it rewritten by the Congress, which is largely discredited for a number of people, or to have a national constituent assembly. Right? Um, so that's um, and I, there's clearly there's there's more going on. But um, so people have wanted to talk about evangelicals, mm-hmm. uh, the role of the OAS. Uh, we've not talked about Peru at all
1: um I want to refer to you um, to everyone in the room to the work of a, of an academic Mexican academic in uh, in the United States named Osvaldo Zavala, who um, controversially given the the state of academia and the state of politics in the United States would denounce in several publications peer-reviewed publications and then books that he's published now a um, um, successful academic author, um, where where he denounces and, and he states essentially that cartels and the violence really do not exist as such because they are a fiction created by the state. So it turns around our conception in the, from the media reports about what cartel violence, the drug uh, trafficking, uh, narco on Netflix, all of these programs that that continue the quote myth of the of the narco violence Eh, narco corridos these songs all of these pretty much as professor kingsbury just pointed out arising around the time of calderon to 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 play a magic trick look at this hand over here not this hand over here and uh, let's distract the population the same way that it has been said about Colombia and its narcotrafic and the situation in Bolivia and its narcotrafic uh, in Venezuela accusing the, the government of, uh, of uh, Maduro as being a narcotrafic uh, government. The, the trope, that is the repeated imagery of the uh, uh, narcotraficante and the violence that's associated to it is a convenient trope, according to Zavala and many others who are denouncing neoliberal strategies of, um, of um, uh, duping, if you wish, distracting the public at large, us at large, from the real machinations that the states um, and the governments are doing, they have militarized the, the police force. They have militarized the country in a protracted war against uh, any kind of political interference. This is part of the uh, thesis of Oswaldo Savala. So I, I would again, I would uh, urge you to take a take a look at that book right there because um, it is quite a revealing uh, a point. You mentioned Enrique Dussel in interviews in Mexico and people like him and other intellectuals from Latin America are also pointing out to the the, the, the magic trick that is going on in the media uh, regarding the old political tropes again, capitalism versus socialism and socialism and the ideals that socialism stands for, pretty much being trashed and and uh, associated to a quote bad term in um, human rights as a trope, associated also taken over appropriated uh, by people like Abrams, that Professor King- Kingsbury already mentioned. He used to be a person who worked for quote human rights issues, and then became part of the cabinet of Ronald Reagan in 1980 and used his background as working with human rights now to turn around and, and, and call it a cause for neoliberal uh, uh, strategies. So these are things to think about. It's a reality, it's not a conspiracy theory. No, but supporters of AMLO will say he's, he's got to,
0: that it, it's, it's politics and he's got to, if he wants to carry out the social reforms he wants to carry out in Mexico as the president of Mexico, mm-hmm. this is not my, I'm not, I'm just saying. Uh, that he's got to engage in some sort of negotiation, right? Uh, and that the the way in which he's become complicit with uh, immigration policy that's been written by an actual white supremacist um, is disconcerting. I mean, uh, to say the, the least. But um, no, it's a situation. It's especially because it's a uh, you know the the southern border of Mexico, and then. El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala are not very stable places to begin with. They didn't. They didn't have a particularly rosy human rights picture prior to the militarization of the southern border uh, of Mexico with Guatemala. Um, it's a you know it's a region that almost begs a military solution from a policymakers' point of view because it's a. It's a long and undeveloped border, which means it's very porous. I've, I've walked across it multiple times, actually, and just kind of like presented myself in the, the passport office and said, Can you stamp my passport, please? And I'm like, Where'd you come from? <laughs> um, so it, it, like it, it, it presents a tactical nightmare from a, from a policymaker's point, point of view. And especially in a context where AMLO is trying to keep the military on side for whatever he's trying to negotiate to end or deal with the drug war. Uh, giving them uh, an increased role on the southern border to protect the country from migrants that are facing incredible, like in civil society as well, like there are defenders of human rights and of the human rights of migrants, but there's also been xenophobic attacks on Hondurans, on Salvadorans, on Guatemalans, trying to flee um, their own conditions of of, uh, difficult situations. Mm -hmm. They also, I mean, there's an appreciable, increase in scale, but they get politicized and spectacularized by the media, especially in, in the United States, and by the White House, right? It gives them a new visibility mm-hmm. and like, fear-mongering around them as well. Absolutely. This this gets into something that was brought up earlier about representations, generally speaking, mm-hmm. right? And I think that there are, somebody who talks to the media, um... Constantly runs in the same frustration is that there there are there are uh, archetypes scripts and a propensity towards spectacular spectacle right and so you know you go and the first thing they say is, so how bad is it in Venezuela and you're like do you want to actually talk and uh, they and so then also so there there's a sort of if it. If it bleeds, it leads is the is the the bias of of the media. The other thing is that there's there's scripts. So if you see student movement, you automatically assume you you think of the echoes of sixty eight, right? The students fighting against the old in order to bring about the new, and and so you assume that all student movements are democratic, are egalitarian, are uh, not produced by the national endowment for democracy. Um, so there's there's a. So, but of course there are student movements that aren't created by the National Endowment for Democracy. But the point is, is that there are, since so much of Latin, or sorry, North America, the United States and Canada, has a very uh, anemic understanding of Latin American history, politics and realities, they have recourse to scripts and then they insert spectacular moments from the media into those scripts of, okay, student protest against violent dictatorship, hordes of the most abject, wretched of the earth, Flood, flooding is the is their favorite verb, right? Or their fa- favorite description? Mm-hmm. Flooding the southern border, um, mm-hmm. people who are uh, uh, different with a capital D, right? I mean, so there's definitely that representation. So there was a hand over here that was that's being patient. I mean, the U.S. is a it's a big place. <laughs> Right. So like every every when when Donald Trump is the, the spokesperson of the United States, everybody can can see the empire in, in you know, clear de- well decline, but also like representing all the worst parts of what many of us have said have been been part of the United States from the from, you know, for quite a while, very beginning. But there's other aspects that are harder to track. That continue even while people are critical of Trump saying racist buffoony type stuff. You still have military-to-military relations, right? And so, like the the, the uh, generals who suggested Evo Morales resign. I mean, when, when the military suggests you resign, that's called a coup, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, it's not as obvious as when like uh, the Honduran military took Manuel Zelaya out I of his bed, office. threw him on a plane, flew him to Costa Rica, and dropped him on the tarmac. Right. That's that's an obvious coup. But when the military says, we suggest you resign, you resign. Right. Uh, But so you still have military to military relations. You still have, uh, you know, the the Bolivian military that told Evo to resign those officers trained at the School of the Americas. You still have uh, bilateral institutional agreements in place, especially in Mexico, between the United States and Mexican military apparatuses. Mm -hmm. And there are other scholars who can speak more directly about that, because I just don't do military. Um, I do militants. Um, so absolutely. Now, one of the things that that happened, uh, you know, arguably what made you know Venezuela possible or, or Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution was that uh, somewhere in the nineteen seventies, Venezuela started sending its uh, junior officer corps for training not to the United States but to Peru. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they didn't they didn't get that indoctrination that. Not even indoctrination. I don't that some indoctrination, but just the kind of informal networks that then, like if you are... Uh you know, if you are a, a yeah, just the informal networks of, of of generals, of officers, and of politicians, and, and you know, business elites, that they all go to the same schools in the United States, whether we're talking military schools, or whether we're talking, you know, Harvard, or University of Toronto, mm-hmm. right? And when they uh, go back to their home country, and are looking to, you know, draw on continental networks to, you know, put down a student revolt, or Open a new mine. Yeah. They op- like they have people in their phone that they can call. It doesn't have to be a kind of puppet master uh, calling the shots. They the United States, as hegemon, as hegemon, <laughs> uh, provides the soil for the weeds to grow, right? Uh, and the sunlight. It doesn't necessarily. It's not necessarily the weeds itself. It's
1: so, Victoria, do you yeah, want to talk it, <laughs> Absolutely. It is a real situation that is a humanitarian crisis. We have to take the term and, and, and own it that uh, people have left Venezuela. I mean, you have the images, you have the reports. You, you, you cannot refute the fact that people have left because of an unsustainable uh, living conditions. And that's the fact right there. Now, uh, it has affected the region to the point that uh, xenophobic attitudes have risen in places like Panama, and Chile, and Argentina, against Venezuela, in Colombia itself, against Venezuela. And what an ironic situation, because it used to be that Venezuela was the place where uh, refugees from the region, Latin America, um, Argentina, Chile, eh, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, eh, Brazil itself, Colombia, going to Venezuela to seek a better life economically, socially, politically. Uh, what an ironic twist of events for now to have that many people leaving Venezuela. That's a reality. The reality of Venezuela because of a, a protracted um, economic conditions that were pretty much imposed by regional uh, it, 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 commerce and, 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 uh, and, and, and um, deals where Venezuela, depending on one type of economy, we know what we're talking about, the oil economy, did not get a chance to develop other other uh, sources and other type of um, a, a commerce industry. Um, and so it makes it a dependent state. When the economic situation that we are presently living in Venezuela um, explodes the way it has, it is not a surprise that Venezuela then finds itself without the means, Venezuelan government, and then people living there without the means of being able to import, for example, medicine that is not produced there. Talking about you know, talk about the big companies, the big pharma uh, corps, it, not produced there. So that's, an, that's a real situation. As far as food is concerned, Venezuela is a very fertile and productive state. Uh, you have the coast, you have the, the uh, interior, uh, and people do resolve their situations about food shortages with uh, community uh, potlucks, if you wish. Recall the situation one time here in Toronto when the lights go out and everyone's food is rotting and going bad, and you have massive neighborhood barbecues going on and you get to finally get to know your neighbors here in Toronto. But imagine that going on for long periods of time. No light, no, no electricity. These are realities. Uh, access of drinking water, that's a reality. It affects people on either side of the political spectrum. That's a reality. When we talk about the reasons for these conditions to have occurred, that's a different discussion. It's a different discussion of... Well, it's, it's, a it's a real discussion that is of concern to all of us. and. A lot of the media, as Professor Kingsbury was just explaining a moment ago, there are scripts that government and media, that tends to be side by side with the government, uh, will will parade in front of the public at large. So these scripts are followed. It is convenient to have, I'm a journalist by, by, by profession, and um, the way that uh, journalists in media corporations work is that you have a stringer, a, a freelancer that might be in the streets in Caracas for example, they'll take a photograph have a recording on their iPhone today and they will opt that to the to the, to the the media companies that will buy it and they will share the same image it doesn't matter if you are working for the Associated Press EPI, uh, routers um, and CNN will opt to show one side, how do you know which which side of the student protests are for or against the government? We typically think, oh, these are against the government. This is against the D68 the effect, it's called. We think that they're all radicals. They're all on the left. But, but no, you have students who are actually extreme conservative families going to private Schools or, or some of the old institutions, and they 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 rise up yes against the government, but the media does not show the other side of the student protest as well, an equal a parallel student protest uh, that is supporting the government. We think that in Venezuela, because the media representations, the the the, the corporations that uh, the the government of Maduro should have fallen. It should have fallen in February of March of April of this year. It did not fall because the media has misrepresented the fact that the government of Maduro is actually, in spite of the human uh, rights uh, crisis of lack of food, let's talk about that one, security issues, yes, that, that, that are occurring in Venezuela and people are living every day, in fact, that these are occurring, lack of medicine. People, yes, have been dying because of lack of access to medicine. Uh, hospitals are in terrible situation, but if, in spite of that, there is massive support for the government of Maduro. So, why isn't anybody questioning that in the media? Because it doesn't correspond to the script, right? So, yes, it's a real situation. People have been leaving Venezuela, and it's created a regional crisis as well, not only in Venezuela but in the region itself, right? You have homeless Venezuelans in the streets of Colombia wonderful eh, 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 advantageous mm, settings for the, the media corporations they would take a photograph of the homeless Venezuelan guy who says, I used to be a doctor and, and, and I have a sign please feed me, here are my daughters, my sons who are sitting next to me eh, eh, barefoot, I need food Wow, that's a fantastic, terrible situation, fantastic photo op for the script. What about interviewing the people on the ground who stayed in Venezuela, who opted to stay? And, and it's not that they did not have an opportunity to leave. So food, there is food in Venezuela. What you can't find is, 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 is your Wonder Bread that's imported. You cannot find Coca-Cola that's imported. But you have, you have agua de piña, agua de coco. You have uh, fish in the sea, and you have food. That the problem is distribution of food from the from the rural agrarian areas to the urban centers, Caracas, Valencia, Maracaibo, where it's difficult for the people that live in the city to find the food that's grown in the inter in the interior. Um, that's a reality. So yes, there's an economic, terrible human rights situation in terms of access to food, access to security, having. Security, access to education. The list can go on in terms of human rights uh, bullet points, but um, is this caused by the government of Maduro? Is it an an after effect of the government of Maduro and Hugo Chavez, but the Bolivarian Revolution itself? Or are there other situations that have come into the forefront that have caused that situation? That's a debate in itself. So that's the
0: reality. Um, Real, cause we're at, we're Both. almost at time. Uh, I mean, Maduro talks about how his government faces a guerra economica, like mm. an economic war. They're facing sanctions, sabotage, pressure from the outside. That's absolutely correct, 100%, can't be denied. He has also made every possible mistake, willingly and enthusiastically, at every possible opportunity. Not a PR uh, what, <laughs> what happens, what happens, let's thought experiment, if I can do this for one minute. Let's say tomorrow, Maduro is w- replaced by Guaido. Um, or realistically replaced by Leopoldo López. <laughs> Lopez. Uh, what happens is immediately Venezuelan accounts are unfrozen by the United States and European Union. The IMF issues a uh, series of structural adjustment loans that will have the immediate effect of uh, putting Wonder Bread back on the shelves. Uh, reopening the Coca-Cola bottling plants and so forth, and people, and there will be a uh, momentary economic improvement. You'll see the blip. Uh, you'll see people support the fall of the dictatorship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've seen this story before, but what Guaido, what his uh, economic advisor Ricardo Hausmann uh, from Harvard, so he's Guaido's got Harvard boys. Uh, is uh, what they're going to do is then implement familiar. 1990s style, privatization, austerity, shrinking the state, the complete reversal of 20 years of attempts to respond to extreme poverty, marginalization, and lack of access. So it's it's. Uh, I think that's why um, you do hear a lot of people saying they do not actually, you know, Chavistas of the poor, saying we do not support Maduro. But... Uh, the alternative is a self-serving fragmented opposition that's promised to cut Venezuela up and serve it like a cake back to Washington. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's why Maduro's still in power, is my opinion. Uh, I would just like to uh, say thank you to everybody, uh, to Professor Rivas, uh, to the Monk One program, to Latin American studies. Uh, for hosting this event, uh, mostly to you all for coming, for sharing, for participating, uh, for taking all of the cookies you can on your way out, especially people who uh, (laughs) live in dorms or are otherwise in need of sugar to stay up and finish writing your papers, some of you, I know, for a fact. Uh, Otherwise, uh, happy Friday, and and we hope to do this again sometime soon. thank Thank you.